Yesterday, a friend of mine uh, posted on Facebook, and the, uh, the picture there talked of seven promises that God has made. It says, I am your strength. I will never leave you. I have plans for you to prosper. I hear your prayers. I will fight for you. I will give you peace, and I will always love you. And as I was looking at that, I couldn't help but think of the way in which God faithfully is revealing himself as we're walking through the scriptures. As we continue our journey on Route 66, I hope that you will find these promises to be true. In Genesis, we saw this book, a book of beginnings. And we look at this first verse and we see, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God, eternal God, created all things. And so we recognize God as the creator. We look at him as he, as he created man. A time of great fellowship, of pure fellowship, represented in the garden only to be uh, broken because of man's disobedience. When we moved into Exodus and we saw the, the theme of the book of uh, Exodus very much as one of redemption. It's a book of rescue. It's a book of exit. God said, I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. And so we were interested in, we were uh, um, made, uh, made known uh, that God is our, our redeemer. He was introduced to us as the rescuer of his people. And through this, we not, saw, not only saw that God would rescue these people, but God had plans to create a nation. And today we are looking at the, the third book of the Old Testament. And if there's a word that best describes it, uh, the Pastor Dan, when he was talking, uh, all the things he said were, were all true. I, I'd focus on the word holiness. In this book we see in Leviticus chapter uh, 19, Verses 1 and 2 said, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in Leviticus eleven forty five, 45, we read, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. I have to admit that the, this is the first time that I have spoken from the book of Leviticus. I graduated in... May, uh, April of 1981. It's just one of those books that I will confess. I go to Genesis, Exodus, and if I can get past Leviticus quickly enough, I want to get into the historical narrative books. And it's, I, I think a lot of people uh, might say that as they've read through uh, the Bible, that it is a book that they want to get through quickly. All those, you know, all these grain offerings and different sacrifices and, and all these rules and regulations. Uh, but I've had a, a different look at it and a different appreciation uh, as I've been studying it this week. Uh, the book of Leviticus is actually one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It's a book where uh, a set of rules that God has, uh, gave to Moses to, to the, the children of Israel so that his Hebrew children could learn how to live in a way that would please their God. 
these laws uh, God gave to Moses for the people, they're not just religious laws. They're uh, civil laws. Uh, and you know what? And uh, there's, there's many other things too that are included in there. But again, if the people were to uh, live up to these laws, there would be no need uh, for a king to rule over them. There would be harmony. But sin had a way of breaking harmony between man and God and also with man and man. And so while God would have been so honored and pleased that if man, man had his, his, his children, the Hebrew nation, had followed these regulations, had been able to measure up to what he had instructed them through the laws, they would never have had a need for a king. And we're going to see that in a, in a number of weeks when we continue through the history of the Old Testament, where they would come to the point where they're crying out that we want to be like the other nations. The point of their existence was that they weren't like the other nations. God had, had, a, had a special bond and a relationship and a covenant with them, uh, but they couldn't see that. They wanted something more uh, that they felt they couldn't have with God as their king. But we'll get to that. God wanted to fellowship with his people, and he made a way for them to approach him through sacrifice and, and, and obedience. God wanted to provide a way that they might be able to at least have a portion, though not in the same pure, pure sense, as what they were, had experienced in Eden that they would be in that relationship. And so we see that in Leviticus, we have a day-to-day -day progression for these Israelites, that as long as they would worship God, they would stay in good standing with him. And it was only when they wandered from his instructions that they had trouble, and they had more than their fair share of trouble throughout their history. We see that the, the book of Leviticus is actually the Hebrew word for, the, for some of the first few words that we see there. The first three words that we see in the book of Leviticus are, in my, my version, in the New International Version, the Lord called. Lord called. There's a couple other books. In Numbers 1.1, we see the Lord spoke. In Joshua 1.1, we see the Lord said. And it's, it, it, brings, it brings to the, the reader's attention that what was about to be said is very important. And so don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the rest of the Bible isn't important, but in this particular thing, the Lord spoke, there was something serious that they had to listen to. Some of you would remember back in the 70s, I think in the 70s, I don't know if it went in the 80s, there was a TV commercial. It usually was in, in a context of an, or an atmosphere where there was, there was a lot of people present. It might be a restaurant, and there would be a lot of noise uh, taking place and all the hustle and bustle. And then all of a sudden, the camera would focus in on the two people. And as it focused in on the two people, one of them would say, well, my broker was telling me that this is what I should do. In my best interest, I think this is what I do. What does your broker say? And the other person would say, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And all of a sudden, everybody does this. They lead in. And the whole point is that the slogan, the catchphrase of E.F. Hutton is, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. The book that's, that we're looking at here with this introduction is that make no mistake about it, the people needed to pay heed. They needed to listen. The Lord had called. 
The Lord spoke or the Lord said something important is about to follow. And throughout the book of Leviticus, we read that the Lord spake, said, or commanded some 56 times, if you want to, if you want to go through it and just to look at it. But God has continued to speak throughout this book. He's speaking through Moses. And the people need to listen to this. It's a personal book of revelation when God's just not speaking, but he is saying, I am Jehovah. Some 20 times, I am Jehovah, your God. I am. And there was, again, the reminder of who is doing the talking. This isn't Moses talking. This is God speaking through Moses. So we see that here, here the nation of Israel probably a year after, the, after their deliverance, are camped at the, mount, uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses receives laws, and they are, they are given to them again. They're for, live, for day-to-day living, religious obligations, civil laws, moral laws. They even covered financial laws and dietary laws. And I didn't read it about in, in that dietary part there where they were scared skinny. I, I just, uh, I, I thought, well, maybe I should ask the Lord, but I, sometimes you got to be careful what you ask for. Lord, scare me skinny. I mean, but anyways, Leviticus is teaching us here about a relationship between the, the God who's created all things and his people. That's the context here. Leviticus teaches us the access of the redeemed to God can only happen through blood. That is, the access to Jehovah only on the basis of the sacrifice of blood sheddings. And with it, holiness of the redeemed is imperative. The access that we are granted can only take place through the shedding of blood. But with that, when, when, when the people have experienced God's redemption, there is this... Uh, command that they would be holy. And first, uh, in, starting in chapter, chapter 1 and through verse 6, we see a number of, number of these um, offerings that are there. And I just want to highlight them briefly this morning for you. The five that I'm going to look at are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Starting in the burnt offering, we, we see this in, as we've been reading this morning in Leviticus chapter 1, that this was, uh, this was a, uh, an, an offering that was observed on many occasions. Throughout, throughout, the, throughout their, their lives, it, would, it could be in, in times of childbearing or, or healing or uncleanliness, uh, a, a ransom, an expression of faith to fulfill a vow. Uh, on the Day of Atonement and uh, each, each day in Passover and the Feast of Weeks. So there was, there was a time when this burnt offering would take place. There's some, the symbolism is the laying of hands on the animal shows that the animal either represents you or that your sins are being transferred onto the animal. And in light of this, we see the meaning that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The journey of wholeness and holiness begins with God accepting us through an atonement sacrifice, and that was Jesus. Jesus was that, that, that perfect atoning sacrifice that we might be forgiven, 
of our sins. We see in chapter 2 the grain offering. And the grain offering, again, would be on many occasions followed uh, following after the burnt offerings. It was observed at a number of their annual celebrations. And this offering itself, uh, again, was, was instructing the people on wholeness or holiness, which involved remembering God's faithfulness and his promises, a commitment to get rid of each of the smallest bad influence, to persevere in faithfulness, and to have your, the, the, the joy that could be experienced in God alone. And so these were not, I, I, I don't want to say that it's, there was a choice here that you could do one or, one or the other. Uh, these were being observed on different occasions by the people. A peace offering is one of general thankfulness. And again, there was uh, this relationship with God, giving him uh, your best, have him be the basis of your joy, running to him in times of trouble. And again, this, would, this, this offering could be observed in the making a vow in, in these times of trouble. The sin offering, it was one whenever uh, there was an awareness of, of sinfulness. Whenever, whenever someone would be, uh, the guilt of uh, sin is discovered, there was this sin offering that could be made. And again, guilt can be overcome and forgiveness truly experienced through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at all of these different offerings that these people had to do over and over and over again, I think there should be an incredible relief in, in, our, in, our, in our hearts, in our minds, that there was a sacrifice that was made that, that we no longer had to be doing all of these. That someone sacrificed themselves. Someone became the perfect sacrifice in order that the demands of the law could be fulfilled. Again, one of the one last ones was uh, the guilt offering. And this could be, this could be something that, that uh, uh, needed to be observed because of the desecration of God's holy things, the stealing of other people's things. And again, that wholeness requires that we treat our possessions, which are God's property, uh, with, with reverence that we make amends with those we wrong, and we embrace Jesus' payment of the debt. Those are briefly just trying to, I'm just trying to scratch the surface this morning, but understanding that as, as you read through the book of Leviticus, that you'll see this in greater detail, but there were many laws that were given and many offerings and regulations that were given in order that there might be, we might be in right relationship with God and with other men. But I don't want you to get the thought this morning that faith was because of, of, of what was being done in these offerings. Righteousness was credited onto Abraham because of faith. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and you see all of the, what we sometimes call the hall of faith, all of these great people throughout the scriptures, you look and it was because of faith that they were in a relationship with God. It's because they came to that point of where they, where they, where they in faith entered into a relationship with the God who created them. A lot of times I used to think that it was because they, that they observed the law that they, that they, were, that they, that they came into a relationship. No, it's faith. It's because of faith in the righteousness that had been credited, credited to them.
And so this is, this is where the people are entering into this. Holiness is commanded by the, God, by the God of his redeemed. Moral living through submission to God's laws and services. Being set apart to God and his services. And so this morning again, let us be reminded that Leviticus shows us the, 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 law, the rules and laws and regulations of Leviticus are a reminder of God's grace that gave unholy people a way to approach God. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were cast out of the garden. Their relationship with God had been broken because of their sinfulness. Paradise had been lost. But still, here we are, have a reminder this morning that through all of this, though man remains sinful, there is a holy God who is extending grace and saying, I want to make a way that we can have a relationship with one another. By faith, obediently, observing what I'm giving you in, in the law, we can have this relationship with one another. This is the message of the book of Leviticus. It is a book, despite the fact that it is laced with the law, really is a reminder of God's grace. In Hebrews chapter 9, we take a look at Jesus as a, as a sacrifice for each of us. Let me, let me read from Hebrews chapter 9 at this time, starting in verse 11. Talking about the blood of Christ. When Christ came as high priest of, the, of good things that are already here, he went through greater and more perfect tent, uh, he went, uh, pardon me, went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus became that perfect sacrifice. Our redemption should motivate us to holy living. So on one hand, we see that Jesus has become that perfect sacrifice, but we're also reminded that entering into that relationship, that there's a call that we would be different, that we would desire to be people that are committed to holy living. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The standard that undergirds all morality is God's holiness. Every commandment in the scriptures reflects God's character. The law shows us that we aren't good enough to please God. And that is the main point of what Jesus did for us. 
Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for our failure to measure up to God's standard of holiness. We hear about the curse of the law. The law wasn't cursed. The law was pure. The law was perfect. The curse was that we couldn't measure up to it. And so we see that Jesus has removed that curse. The Old Testament sacrificial system, as outlined in Leviticus, was given for Israel to make their relationship with, with, with God right. Sac- sacrifices were not only given for the forgiveness of sins, but also for Israel to even be able to give thanks to God. And the more you look at the book of Leviticus, the more you'll end up seeing, at least I have this week as I've studied it, that Leviticus is a book of worship. Is that not the, tree, the main reason why we were created? To be with God as, as Adam and Eve were in the pureness of Eden. And there was communion. And there was a love that was so close and pure. And it was about worship. God created man. Man sins. God makes a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God creates a nation. He is their king. And God expects his, his subjects to live holy lives as he is. That is the instructions that he's giving in this book. But we just couldn't measure up. And so God, in his sovereign plan, would bring us to the point where, according to Galatians, when the the fullness of time, Jesus would become a man. And Jesus would come into this world. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. And those words of John the Baptist when Jesus had entered into his early, early days of ministry. When John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Up until that particular time, this would have been foreign to their thinking because all that only happened through what was happening at the altar, through the offerings and through the sacrifices and the shedding of blood. But here was Jesus who came into this world to become that perfect sacrifice. Someone said that God had just delivered the Israelites from slavery and taken them out of Egypt. Now in the book of Leviticus, he was preparing to take Egypt out of them. We are called as a people of God to be in the world but not of the world. And so when we look at the instructions for holy living that were given in Leviticus, I think it's a reminder to us of the holiness of God. Again, in this book alone, over 150 times, it is talked about. God was teaching his people that they were to be set apart or separated for holiness. And so just like the Israelites, we are to be different from the world. We are to devote every area of our lives to God. And interestingly, because when we do that, it really is a sign of worship. Not just the holiness of God, but there are ways that we need to deal with sin. Leviticus, again, shows us all these sacrifices and offerings. They are a means of atonement or symbols of repentance from sin and obedience to God. Sin required a sacrifice. And in in the scriptures, we see that the the offerings were a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who, who gave his life as the perfect sacrifice for our sin so we would not have to die. And again, the, the theme of worship through the book, God showed his people the way into his presence, the path to worship. And uh, as we look at it, uh, 
It's about a relationship with God and letting him into every part of our lives. So when we look at Leviticus and we see that, you know, God was giving instructions for civil laws and, and ceremonial laws and dietary laws and uh, you know, all these regulations that, that he was given, it was for this reason that God is, in, he's, he is incredibly interested and committed to every part of our lives. I think I might have shared this on one occasion when I was up in, uh, up in uh, Waterdown. I had, a, I had uh, uh, a funeral done for one of the guys in the baseball league that I was on the executive. He had tragically taken his own life, and it really shook up a lot of the guys. And there was one guy who uh, grew up at Dia's church and their youth group and everything, and we met that evening, late at night, and I remember putting quadrants up on the blackboard. And I sort of looked at his life like... Uh, there was uh, family and work and uh, spiritual life and, you know, social. And I, but I had four boxes. And I remember talking to him, and it was interesting because he said, well, I sort of got that one, I sort of got that one, I got that one. And the problem is that when I, after I talked to him, God says, you know what, there's not sections. It's one life. It's more like the circle, and it's all in there. All those parts are in there, and God was saying to me, and I am concerned about every part of that. This not the spiritual how-you-doing box. All of them. That's what, that's what God was saying in these instructions to, the, to his people through Moses was, I am, in, I am interested, I am committed, I am invested in every part of your life because I want you to be set apart, a holy people, in a proper relationship with me and with others. And it was a struggle that the Israelites faced and have faced throughout their history because they were a people that wandered and they couldn't measure up to the law. And we see that Jesus would come, that spotless, unblemished lamb of God would become the perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice once and for all. I think it's through the book of Leviticus and then looking through the New Testament, the life of Jesus Christ, that we understand how grace fulfills what the law couldn't. I close with a story this morning, and some of you may have heard this before. It's a story about Fiorello LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all of World War II. He was called by adoring, adoring New Yorkers the Little Flower because he was only five foot four and always wore a carnation in his lapel. He was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks, raid speakeasies with the police department, take entire orphanage to baseball games, and whenever the news newspapers were on strike, he would go on the radio and read the Sunday funnies to the kids. He was a well-loved mayor. But on one bitterly cold night in January of 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served the poorest, poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. It wasn't long before a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her, her daughter was sick, and she had two great-grandchildren that were starving. But the shopkeeper from, from, the, from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. It's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the man, man told the neighbor. She's got to be punished. You need to make an example of it to teach others around her a lesson. 
And the judge sat there and looked at her and then listened to the shopkeeper. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket, extracted a bill and tossed it into his famous sombrero saying, here's a $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so their grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York, New York City newspapers reported that 47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of the amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner, while some 70 petty criminals, uh, people with traffic violations, and New York City policemen, each of them who had to pay 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. The point is that according to the law, she couldn't meet the fine. She was helpless. The mayor who pronounces, the judge who pronounces the fine says you're guilty and he pays the fine. Sound familiar? That's what we're coming to this morning. We're coming to the table of the one who was sinless. He who knew no sin became sin, took our sin. Not only were we guilty of a fine that we couldn't pay, but we, we were helpless. And Jesus, obediently to the Father's will, pays the fine. So the, the, the holiness of the Father, the penalty for this justice injustice of our sins is paid in full that is that is grace and while we look at the old testament and while we look at the book of of leviticus and we see that there's a call for holiness and there's to be an observance of these of these offerings and sacrifices in order that we might be in right standing because of our offenses uh, before our god we couldn't measure up and the reality is, if Jesus had still not come and we were in that position, we would still not be able to measure up. But he did come. And he dwelt among us. And he became that perfect sacrifice. He paid the penalty that I could not pay, nor you could not pay. The fine was paid in full. So while we thank God for his word and how he was instructing his people that if they were obedient, that they would be in right relationship with him. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have that assurance. It's because of his sacrifice that our sins are paid for in full. But we do not receive redemption by what we've done, but by placing our faith in the one who is righteous. That is how we have relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how we experience redemption. Let us pray.